When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. We're back with another episode of Half Hour History Secrets of the Medieval World. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last episode, we talked about the intellectual renaissance and a challenge to the church. Now it's time for knights, armor, rules of engagement, and chivalry. It's all here. Here's Chris. So we've just spent a little time talking about the 12th century Renaissance and this upsurge of spirituality, which had some negative connotations when the church began to be repressive toward um, heresy. And even though we said that that kind of repression feeds into the caricature of a dark ages, wiping all that aside, you can't deny that at about 1050, 1100, there's this flowering, this high medieval period, as if, as if medieval Europe began to wake up from a long nap since the Carolingian Renaissance had collapsed at about 850. And an important part of that, in fact, one of the first things people think about when they study medieval history or where they think about the Middle Ages are knights. Knights in shining armor. Little boys and little girls like to play um, those stories, like to hear the stories of the Arthurian romances, like to go to museums and see the suits of armor. Maybe they've been to a Renaissance fair, which usually looks more like a medieval fair, but somehow the Renaissance fair makes it sound uh, brighter and better. And so people enjoy these stories of jousting and tournaments and things like that. So let's focus for a few minutes on knighthood. Let's see where they lived in castles. And then let's take a step back and look at this code called chivalry and try to look at it in theory and then in practice as well. So let's begin with knighthood. The very beginning of knighthood 
um, reaches back to the Middle Ages. And there's a particular um, word very early in the Middle Ages called miles, and that actually goes back even further to the Roman word for soldier, a miles. Um, it would be milites in another form of Latin from which we get the word military. Now, the Roman soldier was, by and large, an infantryman, a foot soldier. We do have examples of mounted soldiers, say, with Alexander the Great, around 330 um, B.C. or B.C.E. That was one of Alexander the Great's great innovations. But we didn't have a mounted force um, of what we call cavalry in large numbers until the medieval period. The Romans had some people on horseback, but not as many as occurred when, let's say, 800 or 900, through an innovation, by the way, called the stirrup. Stirrups were not around before that early medieval period. And when you have a stirrup, think about it. If you have a soldier on top of a horse, um, he really can't do all that much if he's not planting his feet. But if he can plant his feet in a stirrup and raise himself up, he can strike down. He becomes a more potent, a more dangerous, violent force. He could also put more weight on his own body and therefore more weight on the horse as well. So there's another technological innovation like the agricultural revolution, um, changing nailed horseshoes and things like that, that make these developments possible. So now we have a mounted, armed, armored soldier in stirrups. And these people start moving around the countryside. Oh, we're talking now about 800 or 900 and more than one medieval historian has referred to the origins of knighthood as thugs. A lot of these guys were gangs. They were marauding the countryside, terrorizing the peasants, kind of playing with these new toys, this, this heavy armor that they were wearing. And they were raiding rich places. Well, one of the rich places are monasteries and convents and churches. Now, obviously, the church can't countenance this, and also the church has a responsibility to protect the poor. So an effort is made through this kind of interesting title, the Peace of God or the Truce of God. These were actual documents, actual pieces of paper, but we can refer to it as a movement as well whereby church leaders, local church leaders, abbots, abbesses, um, priests, and bishops tried to kind of channel the violence. They were trying to not uh, make the violence okay, not uh, bless the violence, but to say, listen, you know, I know you guys are going to start fighting, so let's try to limit when you're going to fight. And so the Peace of God and the Truce of God movements were attempts to tell knights when they could and therefore couldn't fight, raid, attack. And these pieces of paper um, begin to show up in continental Europe um, about 850 or 900 and then 950 and 1,000 all the more because it was kind of working. Now, how did the peace of God or the truce of God work? What it said was that there were limits to when knights could fight. They could fight from Monday morning to Wednesday evening. That's only three days. Why not Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? Well, originally they could fight on Thursday and Friday, but then it got pushed back because of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday. Every week, Sunday is like a little Easter. So what the bishops do is they take the concept of Holy Week and they say, listen, you can't fight 
from you can fight from sun up on Monday until sundown on Wednesday, but you may not fight otherwise. Who are they allowed to attack? This just sounds crazy to our eyes,、uh, but th- who are they allowed to attack? They're not allowed to attack clerics, even an armed cleric, because the cleric might be armed to to defend himself. You cannot attack a cleric. You can never attack a peasant. You can never attack a woman or a child. You can never attack a monastery or a convent. So basically, if you boys are going to fight, you can fight three days a week and make sure you only fight each other, and that would be okay. Now, what if you broke the rules? What if you attacked a nun? What if you fought on Sunday? There were heavy duty. Problems if you did that, big penalties, because the local bishop or abbot would call these knights together and usually bring out like relics、um, of a local saint, probably, or even bring out a consecrated host to the Eucharist and make the knights swear that you know put their hands on these relics and say we will not break the truce. So if they did. There could be severe penalties. They could be cut off from the sacraments for a short period of time, or all the way up to and including excommunication. And this worked sporadically. It did tend to quell the widespread thuggery and the and the beating up of local peasants. It tended to do that. But the wars, when wars would break out between this local duke and that local duke. Um, they really didn't usually have their eye on the calendar. So if they're going to press an advantage against an enemy, and it happens to be Wednesday night, it's likely that on Thursday morning they would be fighting as well. So it's kind of an attempt to channel violence, and it works intermittently. But the important thing is that the church's hand was now involved in these activities. Now these knights are、uh, become noble、uh, over time, and sometimes that nobility is inherited. But the knight, the sir so and so, the knight who earns his spurs, if you will. That becomes something that has to be earned. So a title might come down, a sense of nobility or aristocracy might come down. Uh, through inheritance, but not necessarily this notion of a knighthood. Now, some knights did get knighted for administrative or diplomatic service. They would be rewarded with land. Again, this was in the countryside and part of feudalism. They became what was called the landed gentry or the knights of the shire, and from that we get sheriffs. But the important point for the church was that knighthood. If the church was going to take over knighthood. It needed to Im- imbue it with these religious aspects, and if you've ever seen、um, a representation of a dubbing ceremony, whereby a knight becomes a knight, it's a religious. It looks like an ordination,、um, and it has kind of baptism and confirmation in there as well. So the knight would, for instance, be all dressed in white. He might、um, lay down. On the ground in front of an altar and ask forgiveness for his sins. He would then be raised up, and he might have water poured on his head or oil, like baptism or confirmation,、um, to be anointed a knight. And all of the things that he he wears, the the、uh, tunic underneath, the armor on top, the gloves in the most elaborate ceremonies, the belt, sometimes called the garter, makes us giggle. Um, the helmet and all of these would have a blessing associated with it,、um, and it looks like, gee, the church is condoning violence. Well, what the church is trying to do is say, you may wear this to defend the church, to defend the defenseless. 
peasants, widows, orphans, and the poor. And so there were all of these little groups of knights. There were two huge, very famous ones called the Knights of the Temple, or the Templars, who were established around 1130, and their rule was written by none other than Bernard of Clairvaux, a famous Cistercian. And he saw these knights who were called Knights of the Temple because they had their headquarters on the Temple Mount, which was captured by the Crusaders. We'll talk about the Crusades in the next topic. Captured by the Crusaders about 1099, and that's where their headquarters were. And Bernard saw these men as monk knights. In fact, they were tended to be celibate, and they tended to take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and a special vow to defend the church. And then there was another um, order of knights also in Jerusalem called the Knights of the Hospital or the Hospitallers. Now, we need to explain that word. When we say hospital, we have a certain modern conception. It comes off of the word hostel, H-O-S-T-E-L, a place where young people backpack through Europe, a place to stay, a place to have a meal uh, in our day, a place to have a shower in their day, perhaps a place to bathe once a month, once a week. Um, and also to get some rudimentary medical care. So the words hostel and hospital and hospice are all related. And the Knights of the Hospital actually predate 1099 when the Crusaders take over Jerusalem because pilgrims had been going to Jerusalem in large numbers, especially after 900. So the Hospitallers primarily protected Jerusalem pilgrims. Now, where did these knights live? They lived in castles. And when you go on your tours of Europe, the second most frequent thing you look at are castles after cathedrals. And castles were built, uh, castles date back to the eight or 900s, again in the countryside, in a very rudimentary um, construction that's called a mott and bailey. If you've ever built a sandcastle with your kids or as a child yourself, You've built a Mott and Bailey castle. So when we say the word Mott, we tend to think of, well, that must be a moat. That's not actually true. So you're on the beach, let's say, and you're digging a circle. And as you dig, you're throwing sand in the middle and you're creating a mound. And that's the Mott, right? So it's either a natural mound or a hill or an artificial one, which is landfill from digging this moat Around. So normally what you did was you would take a high point and you would build it even higher for defensive purposes. And the bailey was the enclosed area that you would build. So you could have a little village within there. So that's the mott and bailey construction. And so in that elevated little village where the other um, serfs could come and be protected by the vassal if there is an attack, within there you have all the things you need to survive a siege stables, storehouses, residences. And over time, these rudimentary defensive structures, which began with wood, end up in stone, and they get more and more elaborate. They get higher. They get bigger within. If you've ever been to the Tower of London, for instance, this is an example of that, or Dover Castle, or many other castles in Europe. In fact, Cinderella's Castle um, in um, Disney World and in Disneyland are modeled after one of the most famous, elaborate, winsome ca- uh, castles in Europe uh, called Neuschwanstein um, in uh, southern Germany, in Bavaria. The impact of castle building was huge on an economy, and the reason was, like a cathedral, it takes a long time to build, and so it's an employment engine, and all of the people who build that 
need to be housed and fed. So when you're building a castle, it's for security. You need people involved in construction. You need servants. You then have to to um, decorate the castle with tapestries and cloths. People need to eat inside, so you need food production. Now, what was the code? That surrounded the behavior of these knights. This code called chivalry. The legends of King Arthur, the Holy Grail, and Sir Lancelot. Fact or fiction? That's after the break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. This is a, a code cut across cultures. So a French knight has much more in common with a German knight than he does with a French peasant. And so if a French knight is fighting a German knight, he probably is not going to kill that knight. What he's probably going to try to do is take that guy for ransom. And he would have seen that knight, French and German knights, they would have seen each other as brothers before the French knight would have seen the French peasant as a brother, or the German knight would have seen a German peasant as a brother. Now, of course, the Arthurian legends are the most famous one uh, part of this story. And there are many Arthurian legends. 
Uh, Arthurian legends are kind of like Greco-Roman mythology. So when you teach this material, you say, you might tell a certain story, and then someone will say, but I thought Zeus, Zeus did this. I thought Hercules did that. I heard that Athena was the goddess of this, that, or the other. And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. There's no one particular textbook of all the Arthurian legends, but there are some that are more uh, common than others, and we're going to look at those a little bit more closely. So Arthurian legends are really piecemeal with many variations, and each culture feeds in and elaborates um, on them. Arthurian legends and similar legends of knights in shining armor and damsels in distress have their origin, like Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, centuries before, in an oral tradition through these people called troubadours, who would travel spot to spot and perform traveling, acting troops. And by the way, those troubadours were members of a guild, and they had certain rules that they had to follow. We have those rules. So at some point, like Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, these things were written down. We think that whoever the man Homer was did not make up the Iliad and the Odyssey. He was an oral poet, hence the tradition that he is blind. He does not need to see. And he dictates maybe around 900 or 800 B.C. or B.C.E., the Iliad and the Odyssey that had been recited for several hundred years before. Same thing with Arthur. So Arthurian legends, which have been spoken for several centuries, they, they show up in manuscripts in this big cluster. Most of those manuscripts are written between 1180 and 1240, this explosion of interest. People are all of a sudden interested in it. It's kind of like around the year 2000, right? So starting in 1996, there are all of these end-of-the-world books um, that start coming out. So it indicates a frenzy and a, a great interest. And they are in every language that you can imagine. English, French, German, Welsh, Portuguese, Italian. We tend not to think of Arthurian legends as Italian, but there they are. Norwegian. There are Norwegian versions of these as well. And these legends are interesting because they weave together all sorts of cultures. For instance, Celtic influences, pagan Celtic influences, find their way into the Arthurian legends. For instance, in pagan, pre-Christian Celtic stories, there's often a magic lance that is used to heal someone. Or you have plates that are empty that magically get filled to feed hungry folks. And you can see the church is going to come in and say, the plate, the Eucharist that feeds the many, the feeding of the 5,000, the story from the gospel. So there you have up in um, the British Isles the influence of these Celtic stories. But you also have a Muslim influence. Again, a reminder that the Middle Ages is a multicultural, um, global, if you will, interreligious society. Very diverse. You have had Christians fighting Muslims since 732 over in Spain. When the Peace of God movement and the Knights come together around 800, 900 1,000, obviously you're going to see this, this religious element coming into play. So who is the knight? The knight is a Christian who fights the good fight against the so-called infidel or the unfaithful one or the pagan Muslim. And so you get stories, literature, handed down orally and then written down, about great heroes in Spain fighting the Muslims and 
two important ones are the legend of El Cid, a famous knight who fights the Muslims, and the Song of Roland, which dates back to an incident around 780 when uh, Roland is put in charge of a rear guard. Charlemagne, this is a true incident, Charlemagne has come down um, into Spain around the Pyrenees. The uh, Muslims had encroached up over the Pyrenees in kind of a raiding party, and Charlemagne comes down. He puts the Muslims down, he leaves, and Roland is in the rear guard to protect the back of the troops. And Roland refuses to leave a friend of his who was killed, and he refuses to blow a horn to get help because he would seem weak. He doesn't want to seem weak in the eyes of his boss, Charlemagne. And he is killed by the Muslims, and the language against the Muslims is very violent and very offensive. And Roland's soul is taken up to heaven, so this great warrior. So all of these influences um, come together. Now, even though I said we have many variations in many versions, there are, there's a cycle of Arthurian stories that kind of all the other stories key off of in variations based on whatever your country and your culture is. And it's some version of this standard trilogy. Some version of the Lancelot story. Lancelot, Arthur's second-in-command, his major domo, falls in love with Guinevere, Arthur's wife. They have an affair. Arthur has to get rid of both Guinevere and exile Lancelot, the great uh, story of betrayal captured in the 1960s in the musical Camelot. Then there's the quest of the Holy Grail. Again, different versions before this betrayal or after this betrayal. Um, Most uh, people of a certain age will remember Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was made into a Broadway musical called Spamalot, kind of a silly version of the story that God gives Arthur and his knights a particular quest, the quest, to find the Holy Grail, a story that ends up in Indiana Jones movies and all sorts of novels. And then some version of the death of King Arthur, and there are many versions of of King Arthur, some that he dies, some that he actually doesn't die. He's taken away to a place called Avalon, um, and he is known as the once and future king because he doesn't actually die. So there are elements there of kind of um, an assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary or a resurrection, that kind of theme. Where does this trilogy come from? Well, the Homer of the Arthurian period is somebody called Geoffrey, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who um, synthesized these Latin chronicles of British kings. He's writing about the 12th century, and he synthesizes these chronicles of the British kings, and in that synthesis, he makes Arthur sound like an historical person. So people who lived in the 13, 14, 1500s were pretty sure that Arthur really lived. Now, there probably was some prototype character of Arthur dating back to the 5th or the 6th century AD or CE. If you remember, the Roman Empire um, had uh, withdrawn its forces as things got a little tight Um, toward the end of the Roman Empire in the 400s. And so, as they moved down, uh, Welsh or Celtic tribes began to take over or or retake the British Isles and take control. And there probably was a leader in there, a a rebel leader, if you will, who rallied the local um, population against the Romans. And that's probably the origin of this character um, named uh, Arthur. So there's Arthur in history as they believed it at that point. And uh, that collection by Geoffrey of Monmouth, 
um, in Latin and then in English is translated into French by a fellow named Wace, and then this vernacular explosion occurs right after. So that's that 1180 to 1240 um, window. And so there was this flowering of literature about chivalry, what are called songs of war in French, the chansons de geste, or courtly romances, or stories of this exalted, chaste love known as fine amour in the, Roman, in the, um, French, uh, in the French literature. And an example of this might be Sir Thomas Mallory's Death of King Arthur. Written in the 15th century, which is an example of, of a song of war. These are often written in poetic verse as epic poems, and it has the story of courtly romance、um, and this chaste love. So, what is the story of the death of King Arthur? Influential because it, it was then transported into the modern world. Most people who know Arthurian legends are keying off of Mallory's version in one way or another. It picks up the aftermath of the quest. Right, so we've had some version of the Lancelot story, some version of the Quest of the Holy Grail. So now we're moving into the death of King Arthur, the third part of the trilogy. And it has very strong religious overtones. There's a king who guards the Grail. He's called the Fisher King or the Maimed King. And he's wounded, according to this particular version, by the lance used by. A Roman soldier at the crucifixion, and his name is Longinus in this version. So remember lances, magical lances, healing lances, Celtic influence. And he was wounded by this lance in, according to one version, his groin, which may be an indication of infertility, or his hips, or his legs. The point is that he cannot walk. And so that Fisher King becomes the Grail's keeper. And in one British version, the Grail's Keeper is a descendant of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was the biblical character who asked Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus and took him down and put him in a tomb、uh, that he, Joseph, had bought for himself. So Joseph of Arimathea or Joseph of Arimathea's sons travel to, to Britain with the Grail and they protect it. And all of the knights of King Arthur have to quest alone. There are 150 of them, but they split up. And this is a notion of that spiritual awakening, right? That we're all on a journey. It's the classic hero's journey. He has to fight. Forces, he has to unlock riddles, he gets boons and good things along the way. He comes up against all these paths and forks in the road, he has to make decisions, the end is unclear, everything is shrouded in mist, he can't see castles, and it gives the image of life as a journey and life as an exile. So, this is the theory of chivalry. That's a wrap on this episode of Half Hour History Secrets of the Medieval World. Next time, the Crusades. Half Hour History Secrets of the Medieval World from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.